It's Tuesday, July 24th, and this is The Daily Dive. The war of words escalated in all caps on Twitter as President Trump warned Iran's President Rouhani to never, never threaten the United States again. As tensions have increased between the two countries after the U.S. dropped out of the Iran nuclear deal, new sanctions are getting ready to be reimposed on Iran as soon as August 4th. Adam Wren, contributing editor to Politico magazine, joins us to discuss where all the tough language is coming from. Next, the Hanford site, a decommissioned nuclear production complex in Washington state, is currently undergoing a demolition and cleanup phase. Just last year, 42 workers had been contaminated with plutonium and americium. According to reports by the cleanup company itself, mistakes were made at several levels that created a situation that is unacceptable for worker safety. Zara Hirji, science reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us to talk about the nuclear cleanup effort and the estimates that say it will take 50 years and $1 billion to make the site safe. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The proud Iranian people are not staying silent about their government's many abuses. And the United States under President Trump will not stay silent either. President Trump has said we're willing to talk with the regime in Iran, but relief from American pressure will come only when we see tangible, demonstrated and sustained shifts in Tehran's policies. Joining us now is Adam Wren, contributing editor to Politico magazine. So we're going to be talking about these uh, tweets that the president sent off. Very strong language, uh, he, all capitals, so you know he was very <laughs> intense about it. He sent off a message to Iran that tensions have been very high since the president withdrew from the Iran deal. He called it a horrible deal all along. So what did he say in his latest set of tweets? He basically threatened uh, President Rouhani that if tensions continued and saber-rattling continued, that they would face a kind of destruction that has, has only been seen uh, several times throughout humanity. Uh, so these were really sort of unprecedented tweets towards Iran, especially if you contrast them with his remarks to uh, Russia just last week. In the White House briefing on right. Monday, we heard reporters ask uh, Sarah Sanders uh, about that contrast. The president's been, I, I think, pretty strong uh, since day one in his language towards Iran. Uh, he was responding to comments made from them, and he's going to continue to focus on the safety and security of American people. The president's responding to uh, Iran, and he's not going to allow them to continue to make threats against America. If anybody is inciting anything, uh, look no further than to Iran. Her response was that, you know, President Trump has been tough with Russia as well. But, uh, you know, these tweets towards Iran came at 11.24 p.m. late on a Sunday night and were in response to Rouhani's remarks towards the United States. And these uh, remarks, it was kind of a back and forth a little bit. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was giving a speech in California talking about the nuclear deal as well and said that a lot of these um, leaders in Iran are just polished frontmen for the Ayatollahs. So then uh, the Iranian president said, you know, don't mess with the lion's tail, basically. Like, you guys need to step off. And then the tweets from President Trump came. So I mean, it's been a back and forth going on for a couple of days. That's correct. Yeah, there's been a certain bellicosity there uh, that we haven't seen until only recently from Trump and towards Iran. And what's fascinating is that, um, you know, on the on the heels of his undoing this Iran deal that the Obama administration had brokered is that uh, only about 75 percent 
of U.S. Americans aged 18 to 24, according to a recent National Geographic survey, can even locate Iran on a map. Um, so it's fascinating to see all of a sudden this, you know, bellicose behavior towards Iran, which is, by all accounts, an aspiring nuclear power. As we said, the uh, collapse of the Iran nuclear deal uh, on August 4th, a the first set of sanctions, reimposition of sanctions against Iran are going to go into place. They're going to largely target the Iranian automotive sector, uh, also trading in gold and other precious metals. And then beyond that, uh, it's not until November 4th when uh, the second set of sanctions go back into place. Is this the president coming, you know, really strong with, uh, you know, as you said, in the, with these bellicose words to maybe see if they can cut a deal somehow? Or are the Iranians just going to be stubborn with this whole thing? You know, it appears that uh, President Trump is taking a very similar tack here with Rouhani that he did with Kim in North Korea using this Twitter diplomacy that is really sort of an advent of the Trump era. We haven't seen this before. Typically, United States uh, presidents have very measured, vetted statements on foreign policy issues. It's unclear whether or not President Trump consulted his National Security Council before sending the tweet late Sunday evening. But he does appear to be taking a tough stance here uh, in these negotiations. And many people have pointed out so far this week that in 2011, then Donald Trump, who wasn't yet President Trump, uh, sent out a tweet that uh, President Obama would try to start a war with Iran in order to to win re-election. So we've kind of come full circle. And as it turns out, there is a tweet for everything in the Trump era. <laughs> yeah, as you said, I'm not sure if he talked to his national security team since then, John Bolton his national security advisor has released a statement saying, I spoke to the president. If something happens, Iran will pay a price like few countries have ever paid before. So they're on the same page, at least on that front. What would happen to oil if something escalates? I mean, nobody's expecting any type of war to break out anytime soon at all. But what would happen to oil on that front? We've seen gas prices rise here in the United States. It's conceivable that this would not ameliorate that trend and that we could see a spike at the pump given the fallout on oil prices from this increased uh, saber rattling from the Trump administration. Yeah, Iran has suggested that they could leverage their position on the Strait of Hormuz to uh, stop other countries from possibly shipping oil to the rest of the world. So I think that would probably be the worst thing that could happen here. Is there anything that we can look forward to as far as getting a new Iran deal going? Like I said, these it doesn't sound like they're getting along at all. Is there a possibility of working something out? You know, one wonders where this increased leverage from the Trump administration is heading. We've seen the Trump administration take a more unilateral approach in international relations, whether that's negotiating trade deals with individual countries. And so one wonders whether a bilateral talk between Iran and the United States is where Trump is ultimately trying to guide these talks. Adam Wren, contributing editor to Politico Magazine, thank you very much for joining us. Good to be with you. Workers right now continue to uh, sample the air. Uh, that's really the primary threat is, is contamination by the air. We have uh, the plutonium finishing plant that we're in the middle of demolishing right now. We have plumes of groundwater that we need to need to uh, be able to remediate because 
Some of them aren't very far away from the river. So there's a lot of different projects that we have to keep our eye on. Whether it's the radiation or the moisture, uh, the heavy snowfalls that we had this winter, we just don't know exactly what, what could be causing it, a combination of those. Joining us now is Zara Hirji, science reporter for BuzzFeed News. So the United States has 17 former nuclear weapons and research facilities still standing. The Hanford site in Washington state is one of the largest, one of the most complex ones. And they're currently undergoing a process of tearing it down, cleaning it up. But last year they had a few contamination leaks. 42 workers were actually exposed to radiation. What is going on at this Hanford site? The cleanup at Hanford has been going on since 1989. It's a long and slow process just because there's really so many different buildings and so much waste that they need to clean up. And in the last year, there have been some problems in particular at an old plutonium plant. And as you said, 42 people ended up getting contaminated from plutonium and americium. And that's because the teardown of the site ended up getting botched as the president of the government contractor running this particular job, Ty Blackford, told employees in an email, mistakes were made. And right now they're in the process of figuring out how to clean up and do it better. Yeah, there was actually a few reports that were done about the cleanup and why some of these leaks were happening. A lot of it is kind of that typical stuff. We're rushing the job. Some of the safety protocols that they had as such as, you know, tearing stuff down and clearing it immediately in the interest of saving time, they let it pile up so we can get some more stuff and then haul it out. So there was a lot of that stuff going on. Back to the workers, describe to us what they wear, the protection that they are using when they're clearing these uh, sites. If they're the type of employees that are working on the most contaminated sections, there's a bunch of different layers of clothing that they're wearing. So starting from the bottom, they are wearing plastic coveralls, but they also have boots. They might have boot covers on their hands. They can actually wear multiple layers of gloves. And for some of them, they're also wearing a hood or a hood with a face mask that's attached to a filter that's filtering out the air coming in from outside into the suit. They're like your typical hazmat type suits looking things. Yes, these are similar gear that are used across a bunch of different industries. But if you look at pictures, you know, it really looks like they're in these big bulky kind of space suits and it's all just to keep them safe. And the contamination that these workers ended up getting, I mean, it's not like there was a nuclear leak and nuclear sludge was rolling down the road and they stepped in it. These are tiny particles of plutonium and americium that are infecting their bodies. Part of the thing is they're tearing down these old contaminated buildings. And there is a question of how much of this stuff got just stuck in the buildings. So the old plutonium plant, it's called the plutonium finishing plant or PFP, was used to process plutonium for the making of nuclear weapons back in its heyday. And so during that process, some of these particles clearly got out, got into the building. Now the question, it, it's clearly gonna be a risky and um, challenging cleanup. That's partly why it's taking so long and why it took so long to get to the teardown of this particular building. I think the real question of what happened on site was, as you mentioned, they're wearing these big suits, but where exactly 
did they get exposed to this stuff? Was it while they were on the job? Or was it during their lunch hour? Or was it when they were leaving and they weren't wearing all of these clothings? That's some of the questions that the workers have because you would expect that these contaminated or hot particles would be found on the site. But what happened in December, what had happened the June event before, is that they actually got out of the demolition site and they got even farther than the safe buffer area or radiological barrier. They got into the office trailer and they got into the parking lot. And that's where a lot of these concerns have come from. The Department of Energy says that it's going to take at least 50 more years and cost another $107 billion to clean up this site. So it's a huge project. And as you were saying, some of these workers were off-site kind of, and they were getting uh, contaminated. So there's a number of vehicles that were also contaminated, some that made it to the site, made it off-site, back to the site, and were contaminated. That's right. There hasn't been any evidence that particles have actually been found off of the much larger Hanford site, but there was certainly the potential, and that's a question. So after or in the days following the discovery of contamination outside the demolition zone, that's when they found out over the weekend they knew cars had been contaminated, and then it turns out some of them had actually driven home overnight before coming back for cleaning. So that raises the question of, well, the contamination was found on the outside. It's unclear. It doesn't seem like it was found on the inside. But, you know, who else could have been exposed that really had no idea? There was a few accidents that happened last year. How was the government responding to these contamination leaks? And beyond that, how long do these radioactive particles last? So if somebody gets something in their body, how long is it going to be a potential risk for them? I'll start with the latter question first. How long are these particles in your body? And that really depends on where they go in your body. If they end up getting into your lung and getting lodged there, they can be there your whole life. The thing about plutonium or americium, there are a bunch of different types of particles, but either way, they are all takes hundreds of years to break down or they're called half-lives. You're essentially going to be in your body, your entire life. But there's a chance they didn't make it that far. It's just kind of unknown at this point and something that workers who have been contaminated are going to have to keep paying attention to and tracking. And it's always that potential. The concern is that they got into this part of their body where they're lodged and they really will be there radiating their whole lives these 42 people that have been contaminated so far, um, do we know any status of what their health is like now? So far, none of them, that, at least I've heard, have gotten sick at this point. But it, these are the kind of things where it's a very long-term risk. What they're really worried about is it's not like their exposure is going away. They're going to be going back on site. Many of them are already back on site doing other types of jobs. And so what does it mean that you now know you have a base level that isn't zero, but that there are already some of these particles in your body? So how has the government responded to all this? They did a report. You know, one of the things that was faulted in the report was they did a big open air demolition of one of the buildings instead of partially covering it, fully covering it. So some of the particles couldn't escape. They just, hey, let's knock down this building and, you know, whatever happens, happens. What is the government doing to respond to this stuff? The government oversees, the Department of Energy in particular, oversees the decommissioning of the entire plant. 
And then there are a whole bunch of different contractors that are actually running the particular project. So in this case, the contractor was CH2M Hill. When CH2M Hill realized there was a problem, that's when they reached out to the energy department to kind of get them involved. At this point, the DOE is investigating the issue. They have put together an expert panel that's also looking into it. And CH2M Hill, the contractor, can't restart without getting DOE's approval. And then there's actually a couple of other agencies, the State Department of Ecology and actually the EPA, that also have to sign off. The main step forward now is figuring out how are they going to restart demolition in a way that's safer, that avoids this spread of contamination. And the reason demolition hasn't restarted yet is because it does not appear that they have actually come to a consensus on how to do this. In your article, it was mentioned that some of these workers had very low levels of contamination, but it's different contamination for like a regular civilian as, as opposed to what these workers at the demolition site can be exposed to. What is that level of radiation that, that they can be exposed to? There are a whole bunch of different levels, but for the Hanford site in particular, the level that they can exceed or not supposed to exceed is what's called 500 dpm, which is disintegrations per unit. You could think of it as just one of the many units to describe <laughs> right, radiation doses in your body. But even um, the smallest amounts are you know, potentially harmful for you, especially, as you said, if something gets lodged in your body. It's not just the radiation that's a concern, but is it also having a toxicological interaction in your body with plutonium and some of these other radioactive particles discovered on site? The question is, what else? Some of these are known carcinogens. So what could they be doing in your body? There's also this question of the levels that they found were very low and some outside experts question whether those doses are right. The DOE has been consistent in saying that they do not think it's a stronger type of particle and that these very low estimates are really their most conservative estimates. But that is one of the questions that workers have is, do we really know what type of particle we were exposed to? Are there any other sites across the country that are going through uh, a similar operation of demolition or anything like that? Or is this the only problematic one that we have? As you mentioned before, there's these 17 sites where decommissioning is currently underway. And many of those involve pretty risky or challenging projects. In fact, there's other challenging projects just at Hanford. There's a tank farm that is where a lot of this waste is being stored and actually was stored before the cleanup started during the Cold War. And they found that some of that's been leaking and some of those vapors have actually led to workers getting sick. And that's just another project on this one site. Zara Hirji, science reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.